Hello and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. Thanks for listening. Happy New Year. There haven't been any podcasts in a while. Some of you might know the reason for that. Uh, I started this podcast about a year ago when I was injured. um, And the very first podcast, you might recall, was about the procedure that I was undergoing for my injury called Extra corporal shockwave therapy, and some of the psychology of injured people. Um, Well, come mid-summer, I was signed up for the New York City Marathon, and I figured I really needed to start to train. And so I began to dedicate more and more and more time to training for the New York City Marathon, preparing for the New York City Marathon, and the time that I had to do podcasts unfortunately disappeared. But with the new year, with the reorganization of priorities, I'm hoping to, to do many, many more podcasts over the course of the next several weeks. Lots of interesting things have happened over the course of the past six months. Lots of things I want to talk about talk about on the podcast have happened over the course of the past six months, and so I look forward to sharing those with you. Uh, I've also missed the interaction that I've had with people via the Facebook page, um, via Twitter, um, uh, at Pleasant Podcast, and, and uh, at Facebook.com slash Pleasant Podcast. So I do look forward to, to hopefully restarting some of those things here again in 2017. Now, sort of an interesting thing, by the way, um, when I started training for the New York City Marathon in June, when I really started kind of saying, all right, time's running short here. I really need to start training. I really need to start running more. Um, My injury didn't worsen. And in fact, there was a degree to which it improved. Um, And I was reminded of a story that uh, is about or from a guy named Richard Westbrook. Now, Richard Westbrook is kind of a a legend in Atlanta endurance circles. Um, Richard Westbrook was the coach of uh, numerous individual state champions and state championship cross-country teams uh, at Jonesboro High School and at Lovejoy High School on the south side of Atlanta. Um, but more than that, he was a very ac- accomplished ultra runner himself. Um, and in summer of 1990, 1991, I think it was, um, he was one of a handful of people that raced across the United States from California to New York City. Um, and they had specific cutoffs that you had to run about 50 to 55 miles a day. And if you didn't make the cutoffs, they ejected you from the race. Um, and I ran into him when I was with a few of my athletes at a high school track meet one time, and I said, hey, can you tell us a little bit about what it was like running across the United States? What can you tell my athletes about it? And he said, well, you know, one thing that, that always stood out to me is he said that, that I developed these shin splints, he said, in Illinois, and they hurt me all the way through Indiana and all the way through Ohio, um, but they went away by the time I got to Pennsylvania, uh, and I was good by the time that I finished. Um, and that story struck me at the time and now uh, for two reasons. Number one, because he was talking about states in the United States as if they were like miles in a 5K, you know, describing, oh, yeah, I was just clicking off Illinois and Indiana, you know, as if, oh, yeah, I was in mile three and four of the race. Um, you know, there's obviously hundreds of miles involved in in, in knocking off those states there. Um, but the other thing, of course, is the fact that he kept on running and eventually it went away and it got better. Um, and that's kind of the situation in which I find myself this summer that, that, I started running, and then I started running more, and then I started running even more, and I eventually got to a place where, where despite the fact that I was running, as much as I've run in years and years and years and years, I was able to effectively manage the injury that had sidelined me for so many months. Now, I looked for some research on this, and I couldn't find any specific research about how healing injuries through running or by running more act, more activity, um, even though there is sort of an interesting movement um, inside of, of rehab circles right now around... Um, not necessarily doing rice, rest, ice, compression, elevation anymore to heal injuries, but instead actively using injuries, um, and that that can do some things to heal them. Um, but but it did very much stand out to me that that 
I started running more, and yet I got better. Um, I think it had to do with paying more attention to it, and I do think it had to do with becoming, getting in better shape and, and increasing blood flow and things like that. But that's something I'll continue to research, and maybe we'll come back to it over the course of the next few weeks here. So getting back here, getting back into the habit of putting out podcasts here. Um, I couldn't ignore the fact that it was New Year's. I couldn't ignore the fact that it was resolution time. Um, and, and so I started thinking about, well, what were some of the things that maybe – people would want to keep in mind when they're making their New Year's resolutions. Now, I thought about it might be a good time to say, okay, here's what makes for a good goal, and here's what makes for a good accomplishing a goal, but I feel like that's a whole other podcast I can talk about later on. Um, But I will make a quick side note on resolutions. Um, Resolutions, if you're going to make them, they should have two things. Number one, they should be attainable. Um, They shouldn't be easily attainable. You should have to reach for them, work for them a little bit, Um, but they shouldn't be something that is so far afield that, that they are simply unattainable. If you ran 100 miles this year, you shouldn't resolve to run 10,000 miles next year. Um, that's not really an attainable goal. It should be something that, that um, is within the realm of possibility. Now, that being said, I always do say that a good goal is one that scares you a little bit, the one that, that is just out of reach and that's going to require a lot from you to, to accomplish. I believe that too, um, but it shouldn't be something that, that is completely beyond the realm of possibility. Um, otherwise, you'll simply get discouraged. Second thing about it is that it does need to be something that's measurable and planable. Um, I had a conversation with one of my athletes today, as a matter of fact, via email, about the nature of his goals and resolutions, that they needed to be plans uh, or planned. Um, one of my former coaches um, who coached me for a few years used to be very fond of the phrase that uh, a goal without a plan is nothing but a wish. Um, and and I, I believe that too, um, that, that goals need to be, or resolutions need to have some sort of specific measurable, planable aspect to them. The example that he always used is that people would sometimes say, oh, I want to become a faster cyclist. Well, what exactly does that mean? You want to be a faster cyclist? Well, just cycle faster. Um, well, no, you need to have some sort of plan in order to get to that place. You need to have some sort of measurable goal. I want to increase my functional threshold power by 10%. And then you need to have a means by which you can go about actually achieving that goal. I agree with that. Um, but anyway, um, that was a side note. Three quick things I want to mention to you. Can sort of put in the back of your mind as you're thinking about what your resolutions are going to be. And they're all built around experiences over the course of the past six months here. The first one, uh, a story that you might have seen about the fastest known time or the FKT on the Appalachian Trail. Um, last year in 2015, uh, the fastest known time in the Appalachian Trail um, was set by Scott Urich, um, probably the only famous ultra runner uh, in the world. Well, Dean Carnazzi's maybe too, but Dean Carnazzi's and, and Scott Urich, that's about it. Um, and Scott Urich uh, set that record last year running uh, south to north, um, and it was about 46 days. He, he beat the record uh, that had been standing by only about 10 hours, as a matter of fact, I think, um, uh, in front of a, a woman named, or only about three hours, as a matter of fact, in front of a woman who held the record named Jennifer Farr Davis. Uh, Jennifer Farr Davis, who set the record in 2013-2014, uh, is only 33 years old now. She lives in Asheville, North Carolina. She has a couple of books out. I'm thinking I might read one. But anyway... Um, this past September, September 18th at 3.38 a.m., uh, Carl Meltzer, 
um, who is, by the way, the winningest 100-mile racer in the history of ultra running. He's he's won 38 100-mile races. Um, He's 48 years old, uh, set a new fastest known time in the Appalachian Trail. Uh, Rather than going south to north, he actually went north to south. He finished at the southern terminus of the Appalachian Trail, which is here in Georgia at Springer Mountain, um, after departing from Maine on August 3rd at 5 a.m. It took him 45 days, 22 hours, and 38 minutes. Like I said, it was about 10 hours faster than Scott Urich, um, who was really only a few minutes faster than than Jennifer Farr Davis. Um, If you put it all together, he was 18. 18, 18 per mile, uh, 18 minutes and 18 seconds per mile. That includes, of course, all the time that he spent stopped and sleeping and all that sort of thing. It's about 3.28 miles per hour over the course of 48 days. When he was actually running, of course, he was going faster than that. But when you do an ultra record, um, when you do an ultra race, even if you're stopped, of course, the clock continues to run. Um, and so 18, 18 per mile was was his average mile if you factor in all the... Um, miles all the time that he was he was he was totally stopped um they were asking him about him afterwards and he said quote i learned that i can do anything if i really try and give it everything i have i knew i had the ability to do this but i had not been successful but i committed fully and got it done this will just give me more confidence for 100 mile races in the future unquote um and that quotation stood out to me for a couple of reasons but the main reason why and the main reason why i bring it up now and the reason why i wanted to, to include it as part of this podcast on resolutions um is that there's a lot of parts of the athletic endurance world that we're just not really entirely aware of. Um, and there's all sorts of, of, of different pockets of races and opportunities um, that are enriching and meaningful and challenging um, and, and worthy pursuits that, that might not even entirely be on our radar. Um, and so when you're thinking about your resolution, I do encourage you to... to not maybe say, oh, well, I'm going to do this many triathlons or I'm going to run this many 5Ks because I always run 5Ks, but perhaps start thinking about other aspects of the endurance racing world, other things that are out there that maybe you haven't done before. Um, the trail racing and ultra world, I'm not trying to encourage you to get into that necessarily, but it's a fascinating world of people that are much different from uh, some of the more straight-laced and gear-obsessed triathletes and, and short-distance racers um, that... that I would consider myself one of, as a matter of fact. Um, uh, Scott Urich, who was the record holder and who, of course, who whose record was broken by Carl Metzer, actually joined Carl Metzer on the, the, the trail for a while and helped pace him to beat his own record. Um, that's hard to imagine uh, somebody doing that in an ITU triathlon or somebody doing that uh, at the New York City Marathon or something else like that. Um, so... Broaden your horizons when you're thinking about the goals. Broaden your horizons when you're thinking about the various things that you want to accomplish in 2017 because um, there's lots of really cool endurance events and opportunities out there. Um, the second thing I wanted to talk about, the second story from the last six months, maybe that you keep in the back of your mind as you are thinking about your um, your resolutions, has to do with nutrition. Now, I purposely haven't done a podcast on nutrition, uh, in part because people feel so passionately about various nutrition plans right now, and I'll talk about why that is here in just a second. But you might have seen uh, a few months ago, um, uh, a story was in the, 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 the New York Times that had kind of been talked about and it kind of had become increasingly well-known inside of nutritional circles over the course of the past couple of years. Um, but the story had to do with sugar. Uh, and specifically, it referred to how there were some Harvard scientists and Harvard researchers who in the late 1960s and 1967 published a series of papers that they knew 
downplayed the dangers of sugar and the link between sugar and heart disease uh, and uh, played up the link between saturated fat and cholesterol and heart disease. Um, and uh, it was published in the New, New England Journal of Medicine or the, journal, the American Journal of Medicine and, and uh, ultimately formed our entire outlook for several decades about uh, nutrition policy. So the, the article in the New York Times said, quote, uh, the document showed that a trade group called the Sugar Research Foundation, known today as the Sugar Association, paid three Harvard scientists the equivalent of about $50,000 in today's dollars to publish a 1967 review research on sugar, fat, and heart disease. The studies used in the review were handpicked by the Sugar Group, and the article, which was published in the prestigious New England Journal of Medicine, minimized the link between sugar and heart health and cast aspersions on the role of saturated fat. Even though the influence peddling revealed in the documents dates back nearly 50 years, more recent reports show that the food industry has continued to influence nutrition scientists. Now, the article, unquote, the article then goes on to say, quote, one of the scientists who was paid by the sugar industry was D. Mark Hegstead, who went on to become the head of nutrition at the United States Department of Agriculture, where in 1977 he helped draft the forerunner to the federal government's dietary guidelines. Dr. Hegstead used his research to influence the government's dietary recommendations, which emphasized saturated fat as a driver of heart disease while largely characterizing sugar as empty calories linked to tooth decay. Today, the saturated fat warnings remain a cornerstone of the government's dietary guidelines, unquote. Now, this stands out to me for two reasons. Number one, as an academic, um, this is the cardinal sin for an academic. I'm a professor, I'm a researcher, and and for somebody to to, uh, take money um, and purposely, intentionally falsify research that then is used to influence policy in the wrong direction. Um, Every profession has cardinal sins. This is the cardinal sin in academia. And so uh, given how much I have to do um, in research to demonstrate that my research is ethically sound and that I'm protecting my subjects and, and that my methodology was good and all that sort of thing, it really, really strikes me um, that, that, uh, for $50,000, these three researchers um, uh, threw their research. Um, but secondly, uh, as an athlete and as a person, um, I grew up in the, in the late 1980s and early 1990s. That's when I sort of nutrition came onto my radar. And that's really when uh, the high-carbohydrate, low-fat guidelines were strongest. That's when they had taken the most hold. And that was the paradigm through which, the lens through which all nutritional decisions were made. Um, And literally, as ridiculous as it seems, to me, a bag of Skittles, which has like three grams of fat in the entire bag, was better for you to eat than bacon. Um, Bacon was a real food, but yet Skittles were, were low in fat. And low in fat is what matters, not the degree of processing, not the degree of sugar. Pretzels um, because they're low in fat and high in carbohydrates, were considered to be a very good nutritional food. Very highly processed food, bars and and uh, and things like that, were considered to be better than uh, things like avocados um, because or whole milk because avocados and whole milk are high in fat, and the only thing that mattered was fat versus carbohydrates. And if something was high in fat, it ultimately was bad for you. If something was high in carbohydrates, regardless of how real of a food it was, um, regardless of of uh, its other potential benefits as a whole food, um, it was considered to be bad. And this is even hard for me to shake today. Um, today, when I when I look at my, my, my diet, I still very much 
have the lens of high fat or, or high high carbohydrate and low fat in my mind. Now, it's interesting now because we're in sort of this chaotic place, um, nutritionally speaking. The market is now filled with all sorts of diets that, that advocate all these varying approaches to fueling yourself as an athlete or losing weight or becoming healthy or something else like that. Um, and the reason for that, of course, is because, um, A, the paradigm under which all of our nutritional knowledge and understanding has been shaped over the course of the past several years turns out to be completely faulty and wrong, and that leaves this vacuum for for other paradigms and, and other uh, approaches um, to, to sit, sit, step in. Um, but secondly, and perhaps more importantly, the authorities, the people on whom we depended to tell us what was good for us and what would fuel us well and what would keep us healthy, completely betrayed us. Um, by accepting money from a lobbying group, falsifying research, and then translating that into misguided policy that ultimately, by the way, undoubtedly resulted in the deaths of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people in the United States and, and around the world. And so, you know, given the fact that we're in this really kind of chaotic place, nutritionally speaking, I, I hear people all the time saying, oh, well, I'm going to try and, and fix my diet by doing something that really, really doesn't make a whole lot of sense, um, or by joining a fad diet, or by joining some sort of diet cult almost. Um, and, and given that, um, I wanted to, to, and given the fact that, that a lot of that has to do with resolutions, I wanted to, to share with you the, the tenets of a new book that's just come out by, by, by Matt Fitzgerald. Um, Matt Fitzgerald, I've talked about him on the, on the podcast before. He's the guy that I always say that I would be that guy if, if I wasn't who I am. Um, but uh, he just uh, published a book called The Endurance Diet. And essentially what Matt Fitzgerald did is he went around the world and he visited hundreds of people, hundreds of elite athletes in lots of different sports, in lots of different cultures, in lots of different places. And he said, okay, what is it that elite athletes in the United States and Morocco and Japan and South Africa and Indonesia and China uh, in Russia, in Mexico, in wherever else, what is it that all of these varying athletes have in common when it comes to eating well? How do elite athletes across space, how do they actually eat? Um, and given that, seeing that, he found some commonalities. He found essentially five things. Number one, he said they eat everything. Um, and by that, he says they, they eat a very varied diet. Um, very few of them, he said, are vegetarians or eat gluten-free or, or something else like that. Now, my wife's a vegetarian, and she has good, solid, I think, meaningful reasons, uh, environmental reasons for choosing to eat vegetarian, and I appreciate those, and I think they're legitimate. Um, and, and he addresses that in the book and says that there are good ways that you can cut certain things out of your diet um, if you have ethical opposition to it or something else like that. But he said, generally speaking, looking at athletes, they tend to eat everything. They eat a wide variety of foods, uh, and from that they get a wide variety of minerals and nutrients. Um, second, he said that they tend to eat for happiness. They tend to, to kind of eat what they want. Now, they don't, of course, just eat whatever they want at all times. Um, you know, the rest of them here have to do that as well. But but he said that, that he found that very few of the athletes that he came across were denying themselves the foods that they wanted on a regular basis. Um, he said that, that certainly uh, athletes around the world would eat high-quality foods, and that's the next one, as a matter of fact. But um, but he said that, that, that they, they weren't complete robots and... and um, they did tend to enjoy uh, parts of eating as well. A third thing is he said they, they tend to eat very high-quality foods. 
um, and in addressing what was a high quality food versus a non high quality food, he said to think about whether a food increases health or decreases health. Uh, that means vegetables, fruits, clean sources of protein, healthy fats, things like that are high quality foods. And he said those tended to be the bulk of their of their eating. Um, Certainly, they would have treats, see eating for happiness, the last thing that I just said, um, but the bulk of their foods were high-quality foods, food that would increase their health. Um, uh, number four, and this is one that really stood out to me, of course, they tend to eat carbohydrates, plenty of carbohydrates. Carbohydrates were the center of their diets. Um, they were high-quality carbohydrates. They were grains. They were fruits. Um, they, were, they were starchy vegetables. Um, but they didn't avoid carbohydrates entirely. Um, and I see so often, particularly outside of the endurance world, but even inside the endurance world as well, people saying, oh, well, you know, I, I really need to lose weight, so I'm going to quit eating carbohydrates. If you're looking to sustain injury or, or sustain energy over time, um, cutting carbohydrates entirely out of your diet is, is not the way to go about it. And, and that's not what Matt Fitzgerald found when he was going around the world looking at people in all sorts of different places. Um, he found that they still ate plenty of carbohydrates. High-quality carbohydrates, not candy and highly processed foods um, or pretzels, um, but but high-quality foods, foods that would increase their health. Again, fruits, vegetables. Um, fifth and finally, he said they, t- they did tend to eat individually. He said that, that almost every single one of them uh, within their, their own culture would tweak things that they knew were going to be uh, better for them and that would work better for them. Um, none of them were doctrinarian. None of them held strictly and strongly to uh, a, a specific set of rules. Um, and that's something that I appreciated as well. Now, so those five things, eating everything, eating for happiness, eating high quality, eating eating uh, more carbohydrates, and of course, eating individually, those five things. Um, if that's too much to remember, <laughs> perhaps as you're making your resolution having to do with nutrition, just keep in mind what the nutrition Michael Pollan has been saying for years and years and years. Um, his short, uh, what, five, seven uh, word mantra has always been, uh, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Um, and if you're looking for a guideline for a nutrition resolution, I think that's a good place to go. Um, Third thing and finally uh, that I would suggest you keep in the back of your mind as you are making resolutions here are what Meb Kofleski calls the little things. Um, Meb Kofleski has been on the scene for a long time. He's only a year or two younger than I am. Um, he's a master runner now, as a matter of fact. He's 40 or 41 years old, 41 years old. Um, uh, he was well known inside of endurance circles, but then rocketed to general fame outside of endurance circles when uh, he had that awesome, super emotional win in the 2014 Boston Marathon. Um, his book is called Meb for Mortals, um, and it's a great book. It's very interesting. Um, but the most striking thing about me when I read it is that the first chapter, the first chapter, is all about changing your mindset. Um, and you would think, oh, well, that would be like chapter eight or chapter nine, but chapter number one is going to be all about how you need to run these particular workouts. Well, no. He said the very first chapter is about changing your mindset. And he said one of the most important mindset changes that you can make as an endurance athlete is to quit thinking about the so-called small things or little things as if they're little things. He said that he has been described for years by sports writers as someone who's really good at the little things. And the reason why he's had such good longevity as, as a runner is because he's always focused on the little things, his core work, his strength work, his stretching, his recovery, all those little things. He's been really, really good always at focusing on the little things. He said, the reason why I focus on them is because I don't think that they're little things. He said, I think that they're big things. Um, they're at the center of my training regime. And because of that, 
I don't think of them as little things. I always do them because I think that they're big. Um, and so as you're thinking about you want to integrate more stretching into your program. You want to integrate more uh, foam rolling into your program uh, um, that you want to uh, do better with hydration, um, all that sort of thing. Maybe the way, the, the, the cognitive change you need to make in thinking about those is not thinking, well, I'm going to be better about, the, about these extra things, about these little things, but rather make an effort, resolve to put those things not in the periphery, but rather in the central Part of your approach to your sport. Do what Mev Kofleski does and quit treating them like little things. Start treating them like big things, central things. If you do that, you are more likely to realize those goals. And there you have it, the latest installment of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. We appreciate your listening. I promise we're going to do a few more episodes here over the course of the next several weeks. We aren't going to leave you hanging for the next six months or so, uh, but we do appreciate it. Go on to iTunes and give us a rating, and we appreciate that too. Uh, link with us on Twitter, at Pleasant Podcast. Uh, look up the website, mostpleasantexhaustion.blogspot.com. Uh, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. Of course, check out ITL Coaching at itlcoaching.com, on Twitter at itlcoaching, and on Facebook, facebook.com slash performance. Uh, finally, don't forget about our other sponsor, my wife, Casey Darden, the Travel Planner. She has a new email address, uh, facebook.com slash MEV. That's K-A-C-I-E, Travel Planner, M-E-V. Um, or you can drop her an email at kctravelplanner at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.